what I'd like to talk about in the uh, uh, short while that we have together this this afternoon is, uh, I guess, well, it's called in the brochure, Imagining Cosmic Torah. And uh, the, the, the question that I want to ask, the issue that I want to bring up is uh, whether there's something to be gained from being more attentive to the cosmic, cosmological, mythological dimensions of our tradition than is customarily the case. And, uh, and not just for us, but really for a very long time. I'm afraid that Ari Katz has me working every single day, so I can't come to your reality maps class. But it sounds like this might be one of those few places where uh, the, re the awareness of the fact that, that we are accustomed to a certain reality map creates the possibilities for uh, opening our eyes to other reality maps. Um, and this is certainly one of those reality maps. And, it, and it's... Uh, it's the biblical one. Now, it's true that we live in a very different age. We live in a different age from our parents. So we can say, alachat kama vekama, right? A fortiori, we live in a different age than Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel and Miriam. And I had to make sure I said Miriam after this morning. I have a little trauma, but I'll make sure I'm gonna get, I get all the matriarchs in whenever I need to create an equal space. Um, so, and of course, uh, our tradition is completely clear about the fact that the biblical era is kind of a thing unto itself. In the biblical era, that's the basically the period of Jewish history that produced the Tanakh, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. It's called by our rabbis the written tradition, the Torah Shebikhtav. During that period in, in Jewish history, according to the Jewish tradition, everything was different. God talked to people, intervened in history. There was revelation going on. And that is the way things are operating according to our tradition until the end of prophecy, which the rabbis generally associate with the transitional era that is <clears throat> signified in their minds actually by uh, the the uh, the period of uh, after the destruction of the first temple. Um, so, for example, in the rabbi's mind, in the rab in the rabbinic imagination, the last book of the Bible is not the last one that you get to when you open your hardcover book or scroll to the bottom of your Kindle or whatever it is now. Um, it's the book of Esther. It's the Megillah. And the first rabbi is Mordechai, in their, in their minds. I'll, I'll, I have a class just on the 
the adults only forum. Then you can, <laughs> you can come to that, and I want to I'll talk, tell you more about this forum business. But what I'm what I'm I'm saying is simply that is even the rabbis understood that they lived in a different world, and in their world, just like in the Book of Esther. God doesn't say anything. God isn't even mentioned in the book of Esther. That's indicative, indicative for the rabbis' minds that this is a, an era in which God is no longer communicating and in revelatory ways that basically make people <clears throat> listen and obey and, and have to deal with a God who's present in that immediate, vis visceral, sensible uh, way. And then we have 2,000 years of Jewish history, or maybe really by that account, 2,500 years, 600 years, that is post-revelatory. That's, that's, um, that's, you know, based on this principle that's also biblical, lo bashamayimi, it's not, the Torah is not in heaven anymore. That's based on this rabbinic ethos that majority rules. That's based on the rabbinic practice of exegesis. Now, we're not waiting now for God to crack open this ceiling and speak to us, or to open the ark, and instead of going, for God to somehow bellow, or what I don't know how God sounds nowadays, but how, what God would sound like if we could open that Aron, and instead of taking out the Torah and going like, right? And, but what if it was God speaking, right? God, I'm sure God did not tell Moshe the Torah with that trope, right? It was when God gave the Torah, like, it actually meant something, right? So that one of the, so you're wondering, what is he saying? What did he take this morning? But um, what, I'm, what I'm, 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 I'm moving towards in, in a very strange way is the attempt to, to argue that we have a 2,000-year tradition of ignoring the Torah, or suppressing the Torah, or muting the Torah, or doing some kind of, uh, you know, uh, what, what could you call it? Uh, like, when you have a, a, a sound signal, and you, 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 you kind of try and equalize it and, and make something that has a very big dynamic range into something that you can kind of manage on your crappy car stereo, you know? I don't know if you ever try and listen to like some classical music in your car and, and you turn it up to hear the soft part and then it, you have to turn it down, you know, or just keep it up all the time. In any case, so, Jew, so there's a whole thing in uh, in, Jew, in, in in Jewish tradition of uh, dealing with the fact that we're in this post-biblical era by living with the Bible, living with the Torah, but kind of muting it, kind of muting it and equalizing it, so that it doesn't really disturb us, and we don't really hear it very very well anymore. We haven't heard it very well in a long time. And of course, 
This can be uh, a good coping mechanism for dealing with the fact that the Torah often says things that we don't like. It often says things that we think are disgusting, actually, and horrible and reprehensible and immoral. And it often says things that are totally mind-blowing, amazing, and just uh, cosmically explosive. And we also would rather not deal with that. So everything turns into and we don't really we don't really hear it. We don't really hear it. And then when we want to know what it says, we look quickly at the translation, but Jews have a thing where we read it usually through Rashi for the last 800 years or so. What does Rashi say? And now today we have, of course, uh, uh, things that I love very much. I love Rashi. I wouldn't say anything bad about Rashi. Right? But uh, I met today a gentleman from Vienna, like my father. And so nice to hear a nice Viennese accent. It does me well, and it reminds me of the story about the Jew in a shtetl near Vienna who heard his rabbi made an announcement in shul that in Vienna they're having a conference. The, the biblical critics, all of the Belhousian biblical critics are getting together. And the rabbi said, it's a shame, if only we had someone who could go stand the ground, stand up against these biblical critics, so they would know that Hashem made the world. And this one simple Jew in the shtetl says, Rabbi, I'll go, I can, I can take them on. The whole town gets together, they put in all their money, buy him a ticket to go on the train to Vienna. And as he's boarding the train and all of the whole shtetl came to the station, they say to him, the rabbi says, so what are you going to tell those, those academics, biblical critics? He says, I'm going to show them that it says the first pasuk in Breshis, Breshis Boroa Elohim Eshashamoim Veresaoritz, the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the rabbi says, Chaim, don't you understand? The whole thing is that they don't believe that Hashem gave the Jewish people, the, the Torah. They don't believe in the Torah. And he says, Rabbi, what do you take me for? I'm not, I'm not just going to show them the, the Pesach, I'm going to show them what Rashi says on the Pesach. <laughs> <laughs> so Rashi is everything, you know. We, read, we just want to see Rashi through the biggest... The biggest, we've heard about the various sins of the Zionists, the occupation and so forth, but the real terrible sin of the Zionists was printing the first Chumash without Rashi. In 500 years, no Jew ever thought that you could print a Chumash without Rashi. This is the great heresy of the state of Israel. But, so, okay. Yami did that. Bialik was Bialik with Ramitsky. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Now, so okay, so so why did I give you this piece of paper? First of all, because it's very important to have something to read when your speaker is saying things that you'd rather not listen to, uh, and uh, and I also needed something to fidget with while I was taking up your, your precious time. But um, I will look at it with you for a moment now because this source sheet. Uh, is uh, is one uh, in one of innumerable possible source sheets 
to illustrate what the possibilities are of a kind of unmediated awareness of something sort of wonderfully strange in the Bible looks like when you don't look at it through Rashi and don't put everything on mute and equalize and allow the text to speak in its its difference. I think that probably saying um, difference with a French accent would have improved that last sentence. But so if you could rewind it to difference, that would be a better, you would get my intention, I think, more fully. So this is, it's sort of okay that I chose this because it is Shmot relevant. It's not Parshat Shmot relevant, but it's Sefer Shmot relevant. And it's not, it's not from one Parsha, it's from a, a few. Um, and, and it's intertextual, meaning that it jumps. Uh, what I want to do in, the, in this little source sheet is to show you how the... Uh, how, how something that we identify as very sort of mainstream and central about our people's history is deeply connected, if not uh, experientially or historically, but at the very least textually with one of the craziest things in our biblical um canon in our biblical lore, and that is uh, the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. If anybody was at the lecture I gave uh, Thursday night, I think it was, at the center I spoke about how the, among other things, that the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel is one of the focal points of the Jewish esoteric tradition going back to the earliest uh, period of, of, of post-biblical Jewish history. Um, now, it's, and of course, the, pros, the prosaic event, and it's incredibly ridiculous, I should describe it in that way, but the prosaic event that it's connected with is Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. So it's kind of funny that that should be a prosaic event, but I mean prosaic in the sense that you know, every Jew from three years old to 120 say, so what's the kind of seminal event of Jewish history? Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Even if you don't believe in the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, historically or in whatever, you can still, but you know that as a fiction, we've embraced it and celebrated it for such a long time that might as well have happened, right, at this point between us. So... Now, so we get, we, now, it just so happens that we got the Torah on this mountain from God. That's kind of strange, but we can also go, um, you know, we can also do the, the monotone muting equalization on the, on the giving of the Torah and the Ten Commandments and all of that. Okay. But what happens when you have direct intertextual engagement between the vision of Ezekiel, of the chariot, which is the craziest, most far-out cosmic chapter of the Bible, I think it's fair to say, and it has some competition, right? So... um, 
and the story of the giving of the giving of the Torah. So that's all that that's all I'm showing here, and that is open your eyes to how far out this cosmology is, and it's not segregated in the first chapter of Ezekiel, which many people have never even read. But if you have read it or you heard it on Shavuot uh, as the Haftarah, I don't, maybe maybe you didn't read it too carefully, or maybe you maybe you whatever. I won't. You can, we can all answer this question for ourselves. But just this was just just to satisfy my curiosity. I hope it's not an embarrassing question. But how many people in this room uh, are? feel like they're basically familiar with the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. Is that something just kind of curious? So, so I mean, thank you for being honest all in, your, in your yeses and no's, but this is, I'm just going to make a recommendation like Ophrah. Go home and read Ezekiel. Uh, summarize for us, please. Well, that I, yeah. Well, it's here on this. I've given you. Was that Oprah from the Bible or Oprah? Oh, I always make that mistake. Does Oprah have a book club? Yes. Oprah. Oprah. But for some reason, her name So how are you supposed to say the woman who has the book club? Oprah. Oprah. I meant Oprah. Okay. Vin. Oprah. Vin. Right? She's a yakir. <laughs> no, her name is really Opa. 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 Okay. So, okay. So, you'll see in a second what Ezekiel one is aiming at. But in Ezekiel twenty four, which is. Uh, it's mishparshat mishpatim. It's like it's in your, you'll get to it in your triennial cycle in exactly fourteen years. <laughs> calculation is correct, right? So, so just remember when this comes around, it'll be I'll be due for another trip to Orange County. So, it's this is Ezekiel twenty-four. Mishpatim is this crazy. Exodus 24, right. In, in this parsha, there are a lot of laws, but somehow it ties it, it comes back to the revelation on Sinai at this point in the narrative. And uh, God has asked Moshe to come up to get the tablets. And there's these, these two verses, three verses. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Adav and Avihu, and the 70 elders, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under God's feet a kind of paved work of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Sapphire stone, by the way, in, in biblical and post-biblical literature, didn't mean what sapphire means to us today, a blue precious stone, like a blue diamond, but any clear crystalline stone. It didn't have the blue connotation necessarily. Um, and upon the nobles of the people of Israel, God laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and ate and drank. It's a very strange uh, 
three supreme, but gives you a sense that, uh, okay, in anticipating the revelation and the giving of the tablets, that Moshe and his brother, of course, and his brother's sons, Nadav and Abihu, and the elders are there, and they see the God of Israel, Elohei Israel, and they see under the God of Israel, there's a, there's a collective visual revelation or a collective seeing of the God of Israel and under his feet and so forth. And despite the danger of that proximity to the God that they are seeing in that way, they're unharmed, and they even they even have a bite to eat. They, they, they wouldn't have called themselves Jewish, probably, but there is some evidence here for their having been from the genetic bottleneck of the four women in Ashkenaz. Yes. So now, so I want to. I'm, I'm going to. I device. How, I, I've spoken for about 20 minutes now, so I, I want to gauge it. Yeah. I have another 10, 15, 10. What if they say, like, a total, like, so we talk about 135 and then... Oh, I'm luxuriating in this time. That's more than enough time to get across a minor point I wish to share. So... You don't have to fill it, you know. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay. Because I'm gonna. I have a secondary plan here, which is uh, to make you feel a little more forgiving towards your ancestors for worshiping the golden calf. I know a lot of you are down on yourselves, <laughs> having descended from people who are so stupid that they worship the golden calf. But I would like to I'll give you some way of dealing with that and coming to peace with this, and maybe you'll sleep a little better as well after that is, 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 is somehow dealt with, finally, after so many thousands of years. So what does it say in Ezekiel 1? Ezekiel 1 is this incredible chapter, largely repeated in Ezekiel 10 for you Bible trivia buffs. And it's the only prophecy that ever happens in the Bible outside the land of Israel. So, uh, which is interesting in, in itself. Um, and Ezekiel sees more vivid detail, more technicolor than the prophets see in Israel. The rabbis even reflect on this. Why is it the guy who was out of Israel saw so much, and the guy who was all the people in Israel never saw so as much as Ezekiel saw? And that leads to an interesting speculation as well. But there's no, like, of course, the, the, the answer to that question from a historian or a Bible scholar who was interested in the ancient Near East and in its mythology would be very different than the one that I'm suggesting as a Shabbos morning, like Drasha speaker. But I don't think that, that what Mom, I, I don't say that to invalidate my reading, but rather to say I don't care about uh, being perfectly responsible to this. 
historical material, I will say it doesn't bother me because obviously our ancestors were part of ancient Near Eastern culture and imagined and visualized their reality, their reality map was shared with other peoples in the ancient Near East and we can understand better our ancestors' understanding of reality through an understanding of ancient Near Eastern reality, cosmology, and history, and so forth. So not necessarily a problem in any way. So the next time you go to uh, a great museum and see that they have one of those ancient Near Eastern half, you know, sphinx-type uh, beasts with a lion's head and eagle's wings and horse's body or ox's body, usually ox's body, eagle wings and human face or whatever, lion face, you think, wow, that's like Ezekiel right there. Because in fact, that's what Ezekiel talks about. Ezekiel says he was there on the river of Bar when suddenly the heavens opened up and he saw past the heavens to the heaven of heavens. Shmei HaShamayim. So the sky is not where God is. The divine realm in Ezekiel is not in the sky. It's not in outer space. I once heard a Chabad rabbi say, the third base of Mikdash will come down from outer space. And I thought, that's cool. He translates Shamayim as outer space. That's how he understands it. But so there's... But, but really... And it's quite clear throughout the Bible that they don't think that God is exactly in the sky. Right? When God speaks through the Kruvim, through the cherubs in the, in the Bishkan, in the uh, tabernacle, and later in the, right, in, in the first temple, in the, in the Oel Moed or whatever, all of these things, it's not that they're seeing into the sky. They're, they're peering through a a, a portal into the divine dimension. It's a different dimension. Okay, so what's the one thing I could bring you up, t up ten pages like this? What's the first thing that you, s when the portal opens up, what's the first thing that is seen looking through the portal into the divine dimension? This is Biblical Cosmology 101, and it's pretty consistent, despite the fact that Bible scholars will tell you that the Bible was written over a very long period of time by very different people and blah, blah, blah. But nevertheless, if you just look through it all, you'll see that it's consistent. The gatekeepers of the divine dimension that opens up when the portal is... <coughs> is working. <laughs> the, the gatekeepers are the Kruvim. The Kruvim, translated into English, not really a translation, it's a kind of transliteration cherubs, right? And, but they're not the Hallmark card. They're the cute babies, right? They're not that. They're, they're, they're what Ezekiel describes in chapters 1 and 10. They are like those creatures that you see in the museums and uh, from Babylonia and right the, I forget the I forget their names. Uh, anybody remember the names of those oxes with wings and lion heads? They're not griffins. That's a good guess though. They're kind of sphinx-like, but if you there's a what? Chimera. 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 Chimera, no. No, I don't think so either. 
uh, I'll try and figure it out before I come back next time. But there really is, it's a, it's a known thing. It's like in South Park, they call it the mare, man, bear, pig. Half man, half bear, half pig. Remember that? That was for the kids. But you missed that. That's an episode of South Park from before you were born. Um, so, so you see, in the, Ezekiel is describing this. Four living creatures, they're called the chayot. The four living creatures, their appearance was with four faces and four wings, and, and they have calf feet, and they have wings, and their, their heads had four faces. It says in verse Yud in 10, the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. So you have, and then above, beyond these beasts. So what do these beasts do in Ezekiel? These beasts. What do, be, what do beasts do? Well, you know, they they can be fierce. That's that's true. In, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden, the cherub there, the crew there, is with a fiery sword, keeping people from going back to the Garden of Eden. Whatever Joni Mitchell says, you can't go, go back to the garden. So, the, the cherubs are there. Now, the most simple thing that the cherubs do that you can see described, it's not simple at all, but of course in the Ezekiel and in real life, until the automobile, uh, beasts pull wagons and chariots and Santa's sleigh and everything. So, and God is described repeatedly in the Bible in different places as the, as the being that rides the cherub. He's the cherub rider. He rides around. He says to Noah in Noah's time, so I'm going to go down and see what's going on there. I heard there was some bad stuff happening on the planet. And he goes down and he comes up and he goes around. Right? He's not exactly the same God that Aristotle tried to get us to believe through the intermediation of Maimonides in the 12th century. This is a God who rides chariots and comes, checks these out. He really likes Am Israel. That's his got apple of his eye, as he said to Moshe in this week's portion, you go tell Pharaoh, let my, let my kid out. That's what he says today, in today's parsha. So, but let me get back on track with the cosmology here. So, we, we get where this is going. God rides a chariot, the chariot's pulled by the beasts. The beasts are the cherubs, the kruvim. But you can't. But as Ezekiel narrates it, it's you. When you're looking from where we're where we're standing, if you're lucky enough to get the sky to break open and you see beyond the sky to the Shmei Hashemayim, the heaven of heavens, <coughs> then you you have to go in stages. First thing you see is the be is the beast. They're the they're the. Uh, gatekeepers, and the first thing you see are these beasts, and the second thing you see as he describes it is the firmament that's over the beasts, and and uh, and the um, throne of glory on top of that. You see a you see a sort of hierarchy uh, that only begins with the with these beasts. 
And you can see I skipped in the middle of the first chapter of Ezekiel that over the heads of the cherubs was the likeness of a throne and sapphire stone. Um, whatever, that's all, it's all right there. The, the uh, Ezekiel 10, which I've also brought for, uh, for your inspection, is more or less the same, although it makes one critical change, and that is where the four-faced beast is described in Ezekiel 1 as having the face of man, a lion, ox, and eagle. In Ezekiel 10, the faces are man, lion, no, um, cherub, man, lion, and eagle, which means cherub, what is called ox in one, is called cherub in ten. Okay? In other words, if we want to know what a cherub looks like, what what's the face of a cherub? Just by process of elimination, it's an ox. Okay? So the so the sort of the base animal of the cherub that is the gatekeeper of the divine realm in the Bible is a kind of ox. And this, if you start Googling and and uh, concordancing this ox and its various derivatives, you'll see that it's fairly prominent part of the biblical landscape from a religious point of view and comes into play uh, in, in a variety of contexts, including uh, the centrality of the uh, forms of worship practiced in the northern kingdom after the split between the house of David, you know, within the house of David that created the two kingdoms. Um, that's not my, that's not related to my main point, so I'll put that aside, but just the fact that in biblical cosmology, the way the Israelites experience their um, vision of the divine. The first thing seen is an ox, a kind of divine ox. That's that's what we can take out of Ezekiel. But from a, from Exodus 24, what did we learn in those three psukim that uh, a not insignificant number of Israelites were witness to a revelation that, at least from a textual point of view, sounds very much in, in keeping with the visualization or the vision that is described in Ezekiel 1. They saw the God of Israel under his feet was a work of sapphire stone and so forth. This is from the same cloth, as it were. And so, so here I'm gonna I'm gonna basically conclude with trying to make this sort of twofold point. One is that uh, if we don't press mute, equalize, suppress buttons, there there are a lot of surprises still waiting for us in the study of Tanakh. I feel like uh, it's, uh, in many cases, it's been a, a real tribute to the 
internal moral compass and, and principled goodness of uh, Jewish leaders throughout the last 2,000 years to selectively repress biblical material when we see in a world today what fundamentalism and, and taking scripture literally uh, is capable of, of, of doing and destroying, we can feel very proud that our people actively suppressed this material in the Bible that was uh, likely to lead to great human suffering if it were actually put into practice. So a lot of Judaism, as I said in my opening lecture, no, in my opening lecture, yeah, is the history of what Jews wish the Torah said, but it doesn't say it. So, but we can make it say it because now in the post-biblical period of the oral Torah and everything, we're the boss. We decide what the Torah means. That's really Judaism in a nutshell. It's a tremendous amount of responsibility, but it's built on a conviction that we are responsible and have to take moral responsibility for, for what God has given us, this Torah. But we can't just say, oh, God gave us the Torah, so we have to go commit a genocide, because it says here, that's the instructions I received. I'm sorry, I have to commit a genocide. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't go. So, and, and many other religious communities feel like, oh, well, it says it, you know, the, it says it in the Quran or it says it in the Torah. They're also, the, the Christians in the 16th, 15th and 16th century very happy to put thousands of women to death for the verse in Exodus, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, which they saw meant. The Torah says, the Bible says, kill women who uh, practice witchcraft. And the rabbis, of course, never even occurred to them. First of all, it didn't occur to them that it even meant that. They thought it meant, oh, you don't give a livelihood to, to, to people practicing witchcraft. So you shouldn't be a client of a witch. But In other words, we have to take responsibility for it. And also, there has been a slight problem with this. There's a casualty. And, and that's all I'm here to... Tweak. There's one little thing that, in, in, in the process of taking responsibility for the Torah and making it say what we wish it said, and insisting that it says what we wish it said, and that usually being a good thing, we also have lost our uh, appreciation for its uh, magnificent otherness and and for, I don't know, how you will, each of you and all of us can relate in different ways to it, but to this whole sort of cosmological world that seems so far removed from what we think about uh, God, and if we, if we believe in God, what's the God we believe in? If we don't believe in God, who's the God we don't believe in? But this, the, the God divine world that is living and breathing in the and the Tanakh is, to my mind, something that's worth rediscovering and, and being much more attentive to than we Jews have, have tended to be. Even Jews who now, there's been, when I was growing up, I never heard any rabbi in any synagogue I ever attended mention God, right? Like, we didn't talk about God. That was, it was kind of, I don't know, what was it, it was past right? We didn't talk about God. Today, we have spiritual rabbis 
who do talk about God more, but usually we find a way of talking about God that's fashionable, so it'll be something that the Buddhists, the Jews in the congregation can relate to, or the Hindus can relate to it, so a little yoga is okay, or whatever, but God is floating from the sky and riding around on some chariot carried by flying oxen, that's, I don't know. So, so can you can you use it? Is this a usable past for you? What would you use it for? I don't know. But it, at least as a some some kind of expansive meditation on uh, on the thing itself. To me, it's worth it's worth being aware of, and has a secondary payoff of making you feel better about the fact that your ancestors worshipped the golden calf. How does it make you feel better about that? Because you can see in Exodus 32 exactly what the confusion was about. Moses doesn't come back down from the mountain for a long time. Jews are willing to wait. You can be late. That's fine. But, but come on already. You can be late. 40 minutes is fine, but... 40 days. Come on, we'll wait. But it's a bit much. So, so is the egg related to the shore? Yes. Oh. I mean, I, I say yes because I think but so. Is it related to the cake? Um, like, sure. Like, like, yes. That's right, because a, a, an egg a calf, is just a, it's just a baby ox. So, so when, when Moses didn't come down and they were saying, like, what happened? We, like, we, just, we, we had just a few chapters ago, we were seeing Elohei Yisrael. Seeing Elohei Yisrael in the Bible means seeing the Kruvim. And then if you're lucky, seeing past the Kruvim, seeing the Rakia, the firmament, and seeing the Kisekabot, the throne of glory. That's what seeing Elohei Yisrael means. That's the God of Israel. Elohei Yisrael, by the way, in Hebrew, for what it's worth, it's plural. It, you could translate it as gods of Israel, but they mean God is a kind of corporation, is a is a bureaucracy in the Bible, right? There's a it's really the business of the royal we, but there's also the sense that there's an angelic retinue and there's Kruvim, and Isaiah has the Seraphim, the serpents. I don't have to go that way. Make it simpler. Is the aspect is a fire god? A what? There's a fire god and a god. It's Abraham's God and Isaac's God. That's also very good. No, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, bottom line, then you can even see uh, in verse four of Exodus thirty-two, Aaron is instrumental. I don't want to say. I, I'm going to be very careful with my language. Aaron is instrumental in the emergence of this golden calf. Okay. But when the calf does come out, without, without uh, prompting, they don't say to Aaron, hey, you know, we, what the hell, like a calf? <laughs> like that's what you got for us? They say, Ela, <laughs> let me just look in the Hebrew. It says, Vayomru, uh, Ela Elohecha Yisrael. It's literally... 
It's the, even the word. Eila Elokecha Israel. It's the same as in, in uh, Exodus 24. Israel. So it just means these, the people, the Israelites, are, see the golden calf and they say, that's it. That's what we saw. You've reproduced what we saw at Mount Sinai. We were there when God was revealing the Torah and there was smoke and lightning and thunder and we saw this, we saw the gods of Israel. This is, this is what we saw. This is what it looked like. This, because this is how they see it. This was their, this was their divine Right. This now you can historicize it and say in the ancient Near East the people saw their gods in this in these forms. It's also kind of cool, you know. But they but but, but it means it's not totally random. It means I like to say like this. It means that the golden calf was an honest mistake. <laughs> yes. Yes. The powers of God to a golden calf. Right. It's not right. the thing that they did the calf, they represent yes. what they saw. The thing is that they, they, they were worshiping them. Right. But can you blame them? You know? No. That's my point. Is that they, they, they were shown, they, they, they were, uh, okay, obviously it was a sin. The Bible doesn't try and pretend it was a, that they did the right thing. My, my point is not to exonerate them from any wrongdoing, and, and clearly it's a mistake to confuse the Kruvim with, with the Rochev al-Kruv, you know, the rider, the cherub rider. Right? There's, you wouldn't want to confuse the, char, the charioteer with his horses. So, but that's a, that's a clear mistake. You wouldn't want to direct your attention to uh, to the beasts below. But the fact that in the biblical divine realm, the gods of Israel is a kind of complex that that begins from below with the angelic beasts and then ascends to the rider who's who's throne is set in the, in the chariot uh, of Ezekiel 1 means that uh, their, their, their mistake was was understandable their mistake was, um, was is, is, is coherent with what we know about the way biblical texts describe God, right? It's not. It's not the. Uh, it's not the kind of philosophical God or abstraction. It's also not an old man on a cloud in the sky. It's not exactly. Uh, it's not a childish view either. But it's a. Uh, it's a. It's a complex. It's a reality map that most of us are not familiar with. And and like I'm. I'm sure Rabbi Kavod will not mind me saying I'm a person who loves Kabbalah and studies Kabbalah even professionally, but but we don't usually, when we change reality maps, we might go to the Kabbalah and see, okay, the Kabbalah reality map has the spherot and it has a whole 
a whole code that you can use to understand reality. Um, but very few people have looked for, uh, very few Jewish people I know have looked for some kind of renewal in the Bible's reality now. Like for some reason it hasn't caught on. Like we found, we'll go to Kabbalah, that's fine. We'll certainly go to the ashram or the yoga center or whatever it is. Um, Zen, the asana, we'll do everything. And maybe because they're just better, I don't know. But but the biblical possibility, the, the biblical reality map seems to me to be still a real underdog in terms of its contribution to a kind of religious renewal. I don't know what that kind of religious renewal would look like exactly. What would it mean to embrace, to re-embrace kind of biblical, mythical theology? Um, could you do it without being being a monster or an idiot? I don't know, but I feel like it's a conversation that's worth having. And, and now I'll uh, open the floor to questions and so when complaints. So, when did Israelites accept an unseen God? Is there any? Uh, mostly uh, never. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> there, there was a. But uh, the story of. The God that we don't know today, so to speak, he begins in earnest only with the translation of the uh, Greco-Arabic philosophical materials in um, the Arabic-speaking world of the Near East in the 8th, 9th centuries of the Common Era. The first rabbi to really engage with this God who are familiar with from Gidal and Adon Olam, the 13 principles of faith, one that has no body and no anything and is not a, no anthropomorphic characteristics and so forth. This is a philosophical construct that you could never possibly arrive at without heavy Greek philosophical influence. If you just read the Bible and the Talmud and and bracket that out. Now, the Talmud is already written by people who've been exposed to Hellenistic culture, so it's not completely free of, not that anything is ever free of admixtures of other cultures and all, I'm not trying to make a purist argument, but it happens to be the case that biblical and rabbinic literature is remarkably free of, of philosophizing and theorizing as we know it from the Greek tradition. So God in the Bible is the one, maybe you notice today in the Parsha, God is, you know, I mean, we didn't read the whole Parsha today. Maybe it's good you cut out the bad stuff. But, but in this week's Parsha, in its expansive sense, you know, Moshe grabs the family and starts to leave uh, Midian to go back. He's doing finally like does what God says. We did get one one at one point today. There's like one pasuk where uh, where Moshe says shlach naviyati shlach, I think, and then send just send somebody else. And, and then it says, Vayichar Al Hashem, God gets pissed. But then it, then it doesn't say, it doesn't really go anywhere. It says, God gets pissed and says, No, your brother's already coming. Go say hi to your brother. And it's like, he doesn't like, 
do anything horrible at that point. But in the part of the Parsha we didn't read, it continues and it says, okay, so Moshe packed his bags, said, bye, Yitro, Yitro says, left us alone. Okay? And then, and then they just set out and it says, and then God tries to kill him. There's this crazy scene and before I grabbed like a, um, you know, like a flint from the ground, like circumcises Eliezer and throws the the orla to Moshe's feet and says Khatam Damim and nobody knows what's going on there. Why is God so angry? What's going on? But just stop just stop grabbing it from the parsha. If you have to make a theology based on what you read in the parsha, and tell me so tell me about God a little bit. You know, what do you what tell me about God from what you read in the parsha? It would be very different than what most people come up with. If you say, well, what's the Jewish, what do you believe in God? And then the person says, well, I know it says, okay. Uh, you know, however you remember your principles of faith, you won't get anywhere near the biblical God. Because this is all, in, this is, I can make it simple and just say, this is all Aristotle. And it's just that in between the time of Sadiq Gaon and Moses Maimonides, who lives in the 12th century, intelligent people got scientific. And science was Aristotle. So if you didn't want to be a fool, you'd know that the real truth about the cosmos and God is the truth taught by Aristotle. The problem is it just doesn't say anything that remotely resembles that in our canon. So then become, then we find a process of trans, you could call it a kind of transvaluation, or you can just say interpretation. Maimonides dedicates the guide of the prophet to explaining how if you really understood the Bible correctly, you'd see that it agreed with Aristotle. And since Maimonides, some Jews have agreed with Maimonides, and most Jews continue to read the Bible and, and take a certain amount and still believe the Father in Heaven, and they believe things that are more anthropomorphic and more a more, more humanized uh, deity than, than the official party line since Maimonides would have you believe. I should just say one last thing in that regard, and that is, in Maimonides' own time, one of the greatest rabbis was Rabbi Abraham ben David of Poskier in southern France. The, the Ra'avad, the Raivin, if you went to an Ashkenazi yeshiva, Raivin. And he wrote Hasagot, or strictures, on the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. The Mishnah Torah of the Rambam is his great halachic work, but it's not just halachic, it's his replacement for the, the rest of the Torah Shadalta, the rest of the oral Torah. That's a very interesting subject in its own right. Why Maimonides thought he could also replace the whole oral Torah with his own his own book and then you could just do one-stop shopping, get everything from the Mishnah Torah. When Maimonides says in the Mishnah Torah that you lose your share in the world to come if you believe that God has a body. If you believe in an anthropomorphic, if you have an anthropomorphic God concept, you lose. And the Raivet says on that spot, in every edition of the Mishnah Torah ever printed, who that? Do you think you are? Do you not realize 
that tovim v'gdolim imcha, that greater people than you have believed precisely what you say is forbidden for a Jew to believe, and you now, you want to tell me that those people lost their, have no place in the world to come? Who, what do you know? I, he said, also, the Ravid says there, anybody who reads the Torah will not uh, be able to come up with your your very fine philosophical theology. I'm sorry, because God in the Bible doesn't, now we got angry, we don't know, we got angry, but then he laughed and said, go meet your brother, and it's very volatile. But this is, is a very interesting story, uh, the whole history of, of God concepts. I think you should go to Kavod's class on reality now. You'll get more about that. I have. I don't even know what to do. There are a lot of hands up. But you're so I didn't see early on. I'm sorry. I think the point you're trying to make, in essence, is that by abandoning these old stories, if you will, mm -hmm. and going to more modern concepts, if you will. Judaism has lost a spiritual and mystical quality mm -hmm. that really, in some way or other, needs to be revived. So we don't have this exercise where people are praying to basically hear, if you will, uh -huh. come into a temple, uh -huh. don't really feel anything. Mm. It really bothers me a lot. I hear you. And uh, I think in essence that's what you're saying. I, 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 agree, I agree with you. I think that's it. Well said, I probably should have been uh, able to say it myself. But yeah, I think that you're right. I can tell you autobiographically that I, I went to a Schechter day school as a kid. My parents were members of a reform temple, sent me to a Schechter conservative day school. And uh, eventually, by, in high school, I went to a regular public high school. But was because I had been to a Schechter school, I was kind of marked. I was already called Rabbi Chayas in seventh grade. Uh, and it was as true then as it is now. So I'm not, still not a rabbi. But, um, but what I want to say, uh, in my freshman year of college, I was already quite interested in religion and in mysticism beginning late in high school, and I collected a shelf of the great spiritual classics of world civilization. I was taking also at that time in college the great books of, of the East, and I had my, my Tao Te Ching there, and I had received from the Hare Krishnas in Ann Arbor a beautiful copy of the Gita and the Upanishads. I had a beautiful shelf, and on the shelf well, I had one Jewish book, thank goodness, because for my bar mitzvah, the sisterhood gave me the Hertz Chumash. So, of course, I had to, I, 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 I was willing to put it by the, yeah. by the side of, the, of Lao Tzu and the Upanishads, even if it wasn't as good. Still, I was, what else was I going to put it next to? And I, I, I will uh, never forget, I can't remember if I was tripping, but I might have been, um, pulling that Hertz Chumash off the shelf, and accidentally, right, we know that Kabbalah believes in accident, we know, opening up to the Haftarah for Shavuot, which is Ezekiel chapter 1. I started, I started reading this. And I, I will never forget that feeling of 
uh, surprise. I mean, I was Rabbi Chaius after all. I went to day school. Nobody ever told me that this was in the Torah. How, how could I be a day school graduate and never have read Ezekiel 1? Now, we did that show of hands earlier today. Apparently, it's possible to also go a few more years after day school and not know Ezekiel 1. Even though it's read in shul, everyone who's ever been on, in shul on Shavuos has, has heard this text, and yet we haven't. So yes, it's a great surprise. It is a potential source of renewal, and, and it has the power to create uh, a kind of uh, magic in the best sense that you do feel when you go into sacred spaces and often don't feel in in the places of worship that we find ourselves as Jews today. So, thanks for helping me articulate that. So, yes. Can I say something? Uh, even though the rabbi decided, uh, this woman's had her hand up for a while, as is this gentleman. She did have her hand up for a while. So, let's do one more comment and then let's all do bear cut on the phone. Sorry. I'll, I'll hold it for you. Okay. Uh, what was the question? Versus these things, the tension is great between mm -hmm. the two realms, which I think intensifies the sacredness of it. Yeah, fair. Yeah, fair enough. I would, I mean, I agree with everything you say. I, I only would say that uh, it's not necessary to take anthropomorphism in a sense that's limited strictly to the uh, similarity with the human form, but that even if you look at the second commandment. It seems that its form, its forms, more, more inclusively. So if you, so to have it to, to say, well, my vision of my vision of God wasn't strictly anthropomorphic because my Godhead vision included lion, ox, eagle, headed. Beasts or something, wheels. huh? Wheels within wheels. Wheels within wheels with eyes all over them and so forth. It's still, it, I mean, by the Maimonidean standard, it still creates enormous problems. These are all 
all these are all forms that are both unexpected but familiar at the same time. Yeah. So in my mind, these really doesn't like it at all. No. The rabbis called Ben Yehoshua Ben Buzi Yakoen. was a nothing going into the town. That's right. That's right. But that's. That's, that's because he's, he, he tell me your name one more time. David. David. Yeah, David Wilner. David Wilner, right. So making this point that that why did the rabbis insult Ezekiel? Because he says when you know when Donald Trump walks into Bloomingdale's, he doesn't notice everything because at home he has a gold toilet, so he doesn't notice anything. But when uh, when a normal person goes and sees. Such a thing. Ooh, oh, they make comments, everything. Wow, very nice. Bolstery, everything so noticeable. So so the prophets in the land of Israel, when they saw God, they didn't lavish so much attention on every feature because to them they're there they were each one was a Ben Bait. Each one was normally uh, part of that uh, retinue. But Ezekiel from the outside, from the from the boonies, from the sticks, comes and sees God. He's shepping nachas from every every detail, but still, it doesn't mean that what he didn't what did, still doesn't mean that he didn't see what he says he saw. It just means that he's the only one who thought it was worth mentioning. Right. Thank you very much for your time.